welcome to the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, the podcast that follows three integral recovery practitioners on the journey of waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. Join us and our trailblazing guests as we apply the principles of integral recovery, daily practice, and the aqua map to transcend limitations, accelerate growth, and heal ourselves and hopefully the world. And now here are John Dupuy, Dr. Bob Weathers, and I'm Doug Prater with the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast, episode 31, Waking Up to What? spiritual practice, and finding your purpose. Well, welcome back, everyone. This is the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. And Doug, what what uh, episode is this? Number 31. 31 and growing. <laughs> How about that? And um, uh, anyway, I'm John Dupuy. This is Dr. Bob Weathers. And this is uh, Douglas Prater, our producer and all-around renaissance man. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, we're, we're here. And let me just uh, just say that, that Dr. Bob, God bless you. You just kind of got out of bed to do this. He's been ill. <laughs> so if he just falls over, don't be too concerned. I mean, be <clears throat> concerned, but, um, you know, thank you for showing up. And uh, Glad to be don't here. make it. It's a noble way to go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, guys, today I wanted to talk about, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm writing uh, a second book. Okay, and Doug and I are actually writing it together, and it's called, um, we think it's the practice of life. And from the very, you know, early on, when I was writing the Integral Recovery book, I was like, this stuff is not just for addicts and alcoholics, you know. I mean, we all have our issues. We all suffer from different stuff. You know, just being born human is enough to, uh, you know, and some people say that the birth process is, is painful and bloody enough to require therapy <laughs> for years to the, overcome that. Anyway, be that as, as it may, uh, the idea was the practices that we were talking about are for everyone. And, and kind of the way we're, we're framing the book, and we got this from Ken Wilbur and others, but I think mainly Ken, this is like the four things that you need to do, okay? You need to wake up, which means wake up spiritually. And I think we kind of will dive into that today. We need to grow up which means to grow up, get your ego, you know, in shape and get to the highest moral level that you possibly can, because at these higher levels of development, we talked about in the book, you know, you're just, you have more capacity. You can take more perspective. You can consider not only personal, it's like you don't do away with the personal and the familial and your ethnic and your state and your whatever, but you include it in a much larger context that includes the planet, includes everyone, universe, if you will. And then there's the cleaning up, which, you know, I mean, obviously in addiction, you got, first of all, you got to stop taking drugs. You got to, you know, get your body in shape. And it also is not just the physical, but it's the, the internal cleaning up your, your, your shame, your PTSD, your negative stories about yourself that you inherited from your culture, your family, whatever. So there's a lot of that going on. And then the last one is showing up. Okay. And that involves a lot of things. It involves, I think, uh, developing character. Okay. A grit, stick to itiveness. I was talking uh, with um, Dr. Adam Gorman yesterday, our dear friend, and we've interviewed here. And he's talking about he's working mainly with young men and he's just hammering them about being men and showing up. And, you know, it's like getting your life together so you can actually man up and give your, you know, protect your people and bring home buffalo. I mean, uh, serve the tribe, you know, and that's what men are supposed to do. We're supposed to be strong and we're supposed to be brave and we're supposed to be able to, to, defer our own gratifications and put it, you know, to take care of our children, our family, our elders, our people, whatever we're called to do. So uh, there's that showing up. And it's also about finding what the heck you're supposed to be doing in your life. Very important, I think, because 
if you don't find that thing, that, you know, that direction, and maybe you have several kind of, you know, corrections in your lifetime. But if you don't find that, I think it, we just tend to become discouraged. We tend to become narcissistic. And, you know, I said that every uh, relapse begins with a case of the fuckets, at least most of the ones that I can track. And, you know, you just get cynical and blah, blah. But if you know what you're there for, you go, okay, yeah, that would really be cool. I'd really like to take that shot of this, or I'd like to snort that, or I'd like to stick that needle in my arm. But I got something bigger that I'm living for right now. And so I'm just going to have to defer that to the next lifetime or something, or hopefully never again. So those are the four things, right? Waking up, growing up, cleaning up, and showing up. And maybe we should start with the waking up, you know? And basically waking up is just the whole question of spirituality. What the heck are we talking about? And that's my introductory blast. It's a great introductory blast. Thank you, John. I had a thought as you were talking, and uh, we can come back to it. I'm sure that that's something that will arise organically, but it's the first time listening to you. You're so doggone good at that. I really appreciate your summarizing so cogently. Um, is that uh, any one of those, how did it come to me? Uh, every one of those is at risk if the other three or any one of the other three are ignored. And as you were talking, I was just going back and forth across, uh, across each one of those. Actually, don't have to go very far. I can just look autobiographically. <laughs> and so far as I've ignored, placed less emphasis on one of those, it's come back to bite me. So uh, it's a very rich, that, those four are very, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. I look forward to our unpacking it all together. Yeah, and I think it's ongoing, you know, it's a lifetime's work, you know, it's like, I'm so awake now, I don't have to worry about that anymore. (laughs) There's a tendency to go back to sleep if you don't keep working on it. So all of those things, uh, you know, it's just something that we we continue to practice and work with. And the higher we can get them, you know, up there and, you know, not right out of balance where there's pathology. In other words, we talked about that a lot, but growing up in in the 70s and the 60s and 70s and watching all these gurus come on and just like, you know, crash and burn and hurt all these people. It's like, wow, they had all this spiritual stuff. Well, what's going on? Why are they such jerks? Well, because maybe they did wake up legitimately, but they didn't clean up and they didn't grow up, you know, and obviously they weren't showing up and their 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 realization became coupled with their own wounding and their own narcissism and, and creates all kinds. Issues. So we're finally learning what it takes to really become a healthy, you know, integral, evolved human being at a time when we need it the most. And if you leave, like you said, uh, Bob, you leave those things out, you're going to have problems for sure. I remember in my initial uh, forays into psychology, I, I started studying psychology 40 years ago, right now, <laughs> September of 1977. And uh, I remember uh, as I began to uh, study it, how uh, underwhelmed I was. Um, I was respectful on the one hand because the depth of psychology is is uh, pretty amazing to me. We were reading Freud and Jung, and and that was the first time I'd ever read anything like that. Maslow, etc. And I just never read anything like that. It just it was all blowing my mind. But outside of uh, some references to Maslow and some references to Jung, most of it was uh, psychoanalytic or behavioral, and there was an absence of spirituality in it. And so. There was a there was a tremendous uh, this is forty years dated now but a tremendous kind of cartography for developing ego consciousness or uh, to, to to work on the psychological I was very drawn to developmental theories right from the very beginning but what was missing in almost all of them except for the two I mentioned was any sense of spirituality and it was at that time that I decided to take on a second major which is I was going to study religious studies as well in psychology because I felt like psychology isn't addressing this ironically. 
religious studies wasn't addressing psychology. So, Bob, you felt that that calling, that pull, that need to mm-hmm. delve mm-hmm. into something more spiritual mm-hmm. and, and that dimension of your being longing to be explored. Yeah. I think that yeah. there's a real danger in our contemporary society of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, we talk about uh, developmental levels in integral theory and the culture wars in the United States here happening between sort of the fundamentalist uh, amber or blue level and then the orange rational and the uh, green interconnected uh, multicultural kind of developmental level and at orange and green, which is a large percentage of the population here in the United States, most people never bothered to expand their view of what spirituality could be beyond sort of this uh, dogmatic, mythic, literal interpretation of it. Certainly, I fell into that trap for a long time, completely negated my spiritual development and, and that longing that was begging to come out. It led to a hole inside me that I tried to fill with addiction. In part, that's what my addiction was. And our evolving understanding of spirituality and its importance, the importance of going back and looking at it from these higher developmental planes is just essential to showing up and and all the other four dimensions that we mentioned. There's a book by uh, Christina Groff on addiction. You all have probably seen it or read it, Mm -hmm. just simply called Thirst for Wholeness. She was Stanislav Groff's uh, wife and wrote this uh, really, uh, uh, I think, seminal book uh, years ago on addiction. She is actually quoting from Jung. He talked about addiction as being a thirst for wholeness. And you reminded me of it, Doug, as you were talking about that, is that, I, and I can certainly relate to that. As I left the blue amber uh, dogmatic religion, which began to fall apart for me, I assumed that was all over. So here I was, a religious studies major, leaving religion behind. And that right. was really the experience. And uh, I went through a very arid time in there. And that actually is the beginning of my addiction. It began, those are the roots of it. It began to flourish about a decade later. But it's, I really relate to that idea that in the absence, what did Jung call it? Uh, addiction is like a poor form religious experience. That's what he called it, poor form religious experience. You're seeking something. It's just, why not seek the real thing? It's a facsimile. But I think that's the case with so many uh, clients that I see is that uh, it's, in fact, Jung said this. He says it was, uh, he couldn't find an exception to it when he looked into his clients who were suffering from all minor things, including addictions. Every one of them at the core, his term for it was, had a religious problem. They had a question about this that we're talking about. <clears throat> yeah, and it's also, also I think, um, the longing to, to accomplish, to achievement, to feel good about yourself. And I was thinking about that earlier when I was taking Lucy out to, to run, I kick Lucy out out in the wilderness, and and she runs, and I follow in my house. Uh, John, you might need to say that Lucy's your dog. Oh not my your dog, wife. yeah, yeah, not my, yeah. <laughs> anyway, there was this, there was coming up the road. There's this old hippie lady, uh, you know, gray hair, driving this old Subaru, and she looks at me and like, give me the dirty look, like you mean bastard, chasing that poor dog with your truck, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so I was thinking it's like, you know, like doing drugs is like, you know, when you're doing coke, all of a sudden, oh, I'm brilliant, you know, or, or alcohol that first rush into it. And it's like, it's like going to a, a costume store and dressing up like a Navy SEAL and taking pictures of yourself being a Navy SEAL. And that's, oh, you feel great. You know, you feel like a Navy SEAL for five minutes or whatever. And that's kind of like, you know, the buzz of drugs as opposed to real achievement. And I use Navy SEAL just because, you know, they're, they're kind of a model of just dedicated and discipline and just, I mean, only a very few people can make that, that level of, of training that they do. 
but the difference between just kind of the fake gratification that drugs bring on and the, the real thing, the authentic happiness, the authentic achievement, the authentic service, you know, and we kind of get some of that stuff, you know, the ego stuff, the spiritual stuff, the connective stuff, the lack of neurosis for a little while, the lack of pain, right? A lot of, a lot of it's also to avoid pain, not only the pain of just emotional pain and feeling dumb and bad about ourselves, but also the pain of, of, of spiritual disconnection. You know, where's God? Who's God? Who am I? How do I fit into this? But getting back, let's just, you know, let's just define a little bit about what spirituality is, you know. And I, I've read these, the, the, uh, and, and, and from my experience, it bears it out that I think the majority of, of the millennials now, at least in our country, consider themselves spiritual but not religious, okay? So, I mean, obviously, there's a big political right-wing, you know, religious Christian thing going on in our country. But I think, you know, the average young people growing up uh, uh, think spirituality is okay, but have kind of rejected, you know, religion, go to a Catholic church these days in the United States, man, they're empty for the most part. I've seen the same thing in Europe. They're like museums. So, um, so what are we talking about? Well, one of the things we're talking about spirituality is ultimate purpose, ultimate meaning, you know, who am I? Is there a God? Is there kind of a purposeful theological evolutionary direction that the, the uh, universe is moving in? Is it just some kind of random, Oops, some chemicals got together in the right mix and a little electrical charge there and chi 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 here we are and we have to figure it out you know ourselves uh you know or what's going on is there life after death you know what does it mean to be alive and to die i mean we all all, all our loved ones die we're gonna die all that stuff's gonna pass so what does that mean in, in the bigger bigger uh thrust of things and obviously these things are, that human beings have always been concerned with i mean they even find that that in that uh, Neanderthals are ancestors, by the way, and we did mix DNA, they tell us now. So that explains a lot. But anyway, uh, you know, they buried, they buried their, their people ritually, and they put flowers in the graves, and there were other things like that. So there's always been this, this, this hunger, you know, from, from early tribal shamanistic to, you know, the great religions, traditions of the world to where we find ourselves now in kind of the post-postmodern uh, age. And so these, these are very uh, anchoring uh, questions and it all it also deals with as in the waking up is discovering not just just by you know reading uh, autobiograph uh, uh, autobiography of a yogi or so, I mean these great spiritual books that's really useful uh, to to inform our our spiritual intelligence but the experience uh, that the mystic had the experience that Rumi's talking about the experience that um, who's our great American mystic um, song of myself? Oh, Whitman. Walt Whitman. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Walt Whitman. How can I leave out Whitman? I remember reading him the first time in a gas station. The gas was pumping and I had this major spiritual opening just starting, mm-hmm. starting on the song of myself. But anyway, and, uh, and these, these things are now available to us, you know, and not in a dogmatic way, you know, you have to believe this or that, you know, and you can, you can adopt all that if you choose but in a deep experiential way. And it involves, and Ken Wilber said in his recent book that we're kind of reading and studying together, the future religion, that, that spiritual growth and maturity and realization almost can't happen without a, a meditative practice. It's just like, you gotta do it if you want to get there. So anyway, I just wanted to put that out there. That's kind of a framing what we're talking about and waking up in spirituality. Yeah. If I missed anything, let me know. It, it occurs to me, John, as you were speaking, that I was always interested in those questions, but uh, for the first 
well, well over a decade that I was really exploring them throughout my teens and 20s, um, I was exploring it from a place of philosophy. I had so thoroughly rejected the uh, mythic literal narrative that I thought, well, philosophy has the answer to these questions, and that's a good place to study and to expand your mind, but again, completely uh, disengaged from the possibility of even finding a spiritual answer to it, and it took my addiction and showing up in some AA meetings for me to start to open my mind to a different picture of what spirituality could be in my life. It, it occurs to me, too, that that kind of rational perspective comes from a completely different ontology, or at least it can. We're looking at the world in a way that is completely material and denying the spiritual dimension entirely when we move through that orange level of development. And even for some folks at Green, um, that denied the existence of spirit at all. Like you said, it requires meditation, and that's because it has to be experienced firsthand. It's not something that we're going to see and prove with instruments necessarily, although certainly I admire the folks who are on a quest to try. I believe that that's, that's a wonderful endeavor too. But um, even getting into an interior practice or recognizing the need for an interior practice in the first place, which will allow you to have that experience of uh, spirit, involves accepting the possibility that there are things we can discover through meditation that can't be proved. And for a lot of folks, that's a leap. Certainly it's one worth taking. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a different, if it's, it's a different manner of exploration. I mean, you're, you're exploring the interior. Now I can hook up my brain to, you know, with all kinds of, uh, of different uh, brain scanning technology that they have now. And like say, and I can get into a deep meditative state and I'm having a non-dual unitive experience, you know, body mind drop, like the Zinni say, and bam, I'm just there in this presence, uh, this divine presence, and I am it, and everything's it. And you kind of get that. And you can see the brain doing really, really interesting things, you know. Wow. So you can say mystics having this meditative, unitive experience, the brain is doing this. There, there is a, there is a, uh, a repetitive continuity there among people. But then you have to talk to them. Now, what, what, what did that experience feel like, you know? And uh, that's very interesting. Individuals will report different things, and it depends what developmental level you're at, uh, how you explain it. If you're a devout a Baptist, for example, you'll probably describe that experience in terms of, you know, Baptist religion and the King James Version of the Bible, et cetera, what you have. And if you're, you know, different levels in different places, you, you may describe it, or you may just be so dumbfounded you have to come up with a whole new vocabulary to talk about it at all. And that's why it's, 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 it's helpful to study spirituality and the history of religion and stuff like that. So when this stuff begins to happen, you go, okay, this is not, the, you know, I'm not reinventing the wheel here. This is what people have been reporting for, you know, thousands of years. When you have that experience, it's certainly changes your perspective. It, it changes your connection to the world, your reason for being here and the way you're going to conduct your life um, with yourself, with your family, with your friends, with your purpose, with the why of everything, which is an, an incredibly profound question. Um, but without having that experience directly, it's tempting to look at those brain scans and write it off as a byproduct of something that's happening in the brain until you've experienced it firsthand. Yeah. There's a exactly. disconnect there. And I think there's a strong tendency for folks who are not engaged in a spiritual practice of their own to look at those physical markers and, and write it off as that kind of byproduct. And in doing so, they negate the power of the experience. It reminds me of, I've mentioned this here before, I think of working with clients over the years uh, who have never experienced being in love. That's 
<clears throat> I was talking to you at the beginning, but it's not at all a universal that's, or a given. That's a, that's I, a brilliant way to describe it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's very much like that. I, um, yeah, you have to taste it to know it, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, and and I loved you know action movies and westerns and stuff like that, and I was like, yeah, you know, the guys, and then the and then the heroine would show up, oh, the beautiful woman. I was like, oh. God, there goes the neighborhood, right? All this mushy stuff, you know? And of course, I grew up listening to Elvis and the Beatles and all, you know, these romantic songs. Like, okay, I like the music, but come on, get over it. I want to hold your hand, yeah. Until first time I did want to hold her hand, I'm like, oh, <laughs> ding, you know, the whole universe saying, I get it. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's exactly it. You kind of have to get a taste for it. You know, and, and when I was working in the wilderness with the young young people, and I would talk about these things, and I said, you know, we've all, we've all had spiritual experiences, you know. Maybe it's in sports, or maybe, you know, when you kiss the girl or a guy or whatever, you know, for the first time, you know, and, and all of a sudden the universe changes, or listening to a song, or in the, you know, walking in the woods or something. And I started describing that. And a lot of young men get it in sports, I found, mm-hmm. and through music and different things. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that kind of peak experience that Maslow was talking about. You know, Abraham, he took all the religiosity out of it and tried to make it a secular experience so it wouldn't be biased by, you know, the whole religious thing. And I described it that way. But those peak experiences, when, you know, all of a sudden you're, man, everything is like, everything is everything. And I'm that. And it's, and it's amazingly, mysteriously, incredibly good beautiful, funny, intelligent, you know, all the B values that the Maslow talked about. And that's it. And, ah, and of course, Maslow, he was, you know, one of his insights was he was, he, he was saying that, that uh, most of Western psychology is uh, based on the study of sick people, you know? So, hey, that's a good insight. That's for sure. So why don't we study, you know, people that are really exemplars of humanity and see if there's any commonalities there and we can learn from that. And of course, I think he was the father of humanistic psychology, later transpersonal psychology. I think he came up with the name. And, of course, what we're calling uh, positive psychology now. I mean, it's totally based, I think, in Maslow. And so he started, started studying that. And he said one of the things he found with these people is they had peak experiences, maybe one, maybe more, but these moments of just realization where it, it all came together and that this was an essential spiritual psychic vitamin or nutrient that we all needed to to really, uh, to really actualize and, and become the full potential of a human being. And maybe, maybe uh, Dr. Bob, you can speak why this kind of spirituality, experiential spirituality is so important in, in uh, the sense of recovery from, from, you know, from addiction, from alcoholism, from these things that. Uh, I'd like to, uh, I'd like, I'm happy to address that uh, later with all, uh, both of you. I, I, I'd like to, ask a question and put it out there to both of you. As I'm listening and as we're talking about this, I'm thinking about how it is that previous to my own um, flirtation with mythic literal religion, which lasted for a good five years in my late teens, early 20s, very formative, very foundational for me. But before that, I had such a strong connection to uh, music, specifically to drumming, and did it for hours on end. And I just wanted to, I, I, maybe I'll make a statement, see how you guys respond to it. I wonder if we open up the aperture a bit on what constitutes meditation. You know, for somebody, John, you mentioned hiking in the wilderness. For somebody who's very engaged with nature, for me it was with music. I think with both of you, I similarly um, 
And uh, I actually had the image of my mother who'd spent hours gardening. And I think gardening was very powerful. She was very connected to nature. Um, uh, but I just want to put that out there just before going further. Just, uh, is it possible? Yeah, let me just put, leave it at that. Is it possible to imagine meditation in a, in a broad framework, which is useful? When I hear what you're saying, Bob, and when I listened to you speak earlier, John, about peak experiences, I'm reminded vividly of times when I was growing up. For me, that was snowboarding. The growing up in Colorado, the occasions that I would be out there on the mountains, surrounded by all the the beauty and the majesty of nature, looking around in every direction, seeing the sun reflected off the fallen snow, feeling the wind on my face and the chill in the air as I moved quickly, you know, whipping through the turns down around the mountain. And that was always a profoundly spiritual experience for me. Um, but I didn't have the language for it. I didn't, I didn't quite know what was going on, but holding on to that, I knew there was something sacred about it, even if I couldn't put my finger on exactly what it was. Um, and the longing to get back there and the remembrance of that experience was foundationally important in my continuing spiritual uh, development. But I think, like you said, meditation can come in many forms. For me, a lot of times these days, it happens while I'm writing, while I'm exploring wordcraft, uh, especially from a place of fiction where there is not necessarily any goal, but I'm just exploring whatever it is that comes up and returning to it and allowing and exploring what is inside and what is out there, finding connections in new ways um, can be a powerful practice to explore, to experience spirit. Yeah. Um, I, I just think of music. I remember the early songs of John Denver back mm-hmm. uh, in the seventies and stuff. And he just expressed so much of my longing to connect with God or connect with uh, nature and that innocence of, of, of realization in the, in the natural world. And, you know, and I was thinking that, you know, in the Vedic and the yogic uh, Hindu tradition, you know, they have these ideas of different kinds of yoga, you know, and yoga comes from the root word uh, in, in uh, Sanskrit, yoke. I mean, it comes through into our language means to bind with. So yoga is a way to connect with God, connect with divinity, connect with Brahman, connect with Atman, which in the Hindu, they say Atman, the deepest part of the human soul is none other than Brahman. The deepest part of you is none other than the creator of all universes, you know, God, the divinity, you know, that thing itself, beyond all gods, the thing, and which is really cool. So you think about, I mean, even now, you go the deeper you go, the closer you get. You don't have to worry about going too deep in our own interior practice. But there's karma yoga, which is yoga of service. You know, you could be out there helping people rebuild their houses and clean the junk out of the streets in Houston or what's coming now as we speak in, in Florida, the hurricane that's hitting or helping people. Uh, in recovery or whatever that is, there's um, what are other kinds of yoga. What is the, the yoga of praise? Bhakti yoga. That's devotional yoga. You see it, that a lot in the, in the writings of Rumi and other mystics, just giving your heart and singing praise to God. Uh, there's Raja yoga, which is kind of probably the early integral, uh, integral practice, life mm-hmm. practice. It's like the, Raja means king. The king yoga includes interior, physical stuff, all of these things together. So there's, Anyway, there's, there was an insight, and I think the, in the Hindu tradition, the Vedic tradition were the beginnings of the integral, you know, approach to spirituality. And, of course, they didn't know a lot of the stuff we know about the brain and the body and all this stuff back then, but they're really pushing that. So in, in answer to your question, yeah, there's many ways to uh, connect 
uh, in many ways that are a prayer. When I'm serving tennis ball these days, yeah. I just go, oh, this yes. is a prayer, yeah. you know, and man, yeah. just yeah. let it fly to God. And uh, I find that really, uh, it helps my game and helps my interior space too. I love this conversation uh, for what it holds, I think, for people that are, are, are interested uh, in examining or exploring this is that it opens it up to uh, everyone, you know, in terms of whatever paths, if it's snowboarding, if it's, if it's uh, writing uh, creatively, uh, whatever it might be, is that it opens up the conversations. I've been experimenting with the uh, addicts early in recovery that I'm working with in, in uh, uh, treatment settings here in Southern California. And uh, this comes up every few weeks where I'll just ask the group, what are, what are, what are, I'll talk about cultivating your art form. And I'll expand the idea of art form to include, uh, for, for example, I work primarily with men. And for many of them, it's been through athletics. <clears throat> for some of them, it's mechanics. It's working on engines. But it's just really fascinating. Once people get a hold of the idea that, that all three of us are talking about, they get energized. And you can feel it in the room. And to a one, that's what they've all gotten far away from in their addiction. And so it's, it's like a, guiding them back to what they knew maybe early on before the addiction, something that really supplies what you were talking about, John, which is meaning and value and purpose even for some of them. I've had a guy, a guy recently in one of the groups said he, as soon as he gets out, he wants to go back to where he's from back in the Appalachian area and uh, uh, get a, a car garage, an auto garage going again, because that's really what his calling is. He really wants to do that. We'll see how that goes, but it's tapping into that and it, and for me, it opens it up to much more of a universal appeal than if I talk about what I'm really, I really love mindfulness practice. <laughs> that may not be the best entry point for some people. They get introduced to that with me, but why not include working on a car? Why not include snowboarding? And <clears throat> I think that, John, in your opening monologue, you talked about uh, showing up and purpose, the importance of knowing your purpose and having one. And Bob, this relates a lot to what you're saying too with, being a mechanic and, and having your, your purpose, your work that becomes your yoga, your meditative path and whatever you bring to it when you show up. But it's also okay not to know. I think that we expect a lot of people, especially young people, millennials, for example, and, and this has always been true to know what they want to do for the rest of their life, for example, when they're 18 years old and, and starting to make these decisions for the first time. And it's okay not to know that as long as you're showing up for the exploration and yeah, looking at right. different paths and being fully present with it because it oftentimes is a wandering, meandering journey in and out and back and forth to discover what that path, what that passion is. And it's entirely possible too with the way things are going these days that what your path or what your passion is is something that hasn't even been convented or conceived of yet. Um, yeah. But being present and showing up will allow you to discover that when it does arise. And if we cut ourselves off, we don't have that opportunity. Well, you know, when I was, when I was a young man moving around the world, you know, I left home very early and typical Parsifal, you know, the pure fool uh, myth that I, that I, you know, stumbled around and did a lot of crazy things, but I, I just idea that, you know, maybe my life, why don't I live my life? Like it will matter that I will find something that's important to do someday. You know, I think dropping out of high school in ninth grade was probably not really good. But as it turned out, you know, that was my particular path. Not that I would recommend it to anybody. 
but yeah, why don't, you know, read the good books, study history, you know, study, you know, follow your curiosity, listen to people and ask questions and look around the world and try to figure things out. You know, what is it, you know, like to be that black woman with your grandkids over there, you know, can I, can I wrap my head around that? Or what's it like to be a gay man? Or what's it like to be from a different culture? That's not the United States, you know, an Indian boy that I used to play with when I was a kid in Mexico and all these things saying, you know, I don't know what it is, you know, and I don't know if I'm gifted enough to do anything seriously, but what if I just live as if that were so, and that someday I would find it, you know, and that, that, I think that was really, uh, it was a good, it was a good intuition and, and put me in good stead to, to meet the challenges and do the things I was supposed to do later yeah. on. You remind me of William James. There's actually a theory in psychology called the James Lange theory of emotion. And the James refers to William James, who is so instrumental uh, interestingly, in the development of AAA, as, as you both know, um, William James uh, kind of inverted the typical logic is that I have to feel a certain way in order to do something. And he said, no, that's not how it goes with the emotions, is that you do things in order to feel them. And so he developed this idea, and it really is kind of as if, act as if, and you see how this is picked up in the 12-step tradition, act as if uh, 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 you're going to make it through the day. Act as if you care about these prayers. Act as if you care about sobriety, et cetera. And then lo and behold, one day you wake up and now you've got investment. You've got skin in the game. Reminds me very much of what you're saying, Angel. I love, I love your, your thought that that's brilliant to me. Let me act as if my life is going to make a difference here. What would that be like to act that way? Fake, fake it till you make it. You yeah, know? that's exactly the idea. I always think of William James when that's cited in AA meetings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's very much it. John, I wanted to come back to your earlier question just to make a comment on it. It's not, it's not nearly um, adequate, but it, it's a start, and it's uh, something that is rooted in personal experience. Is <clears throat> You asked about the pertinence of spiritual development in light of s- psychological well-being. Um, am I in the ballpark? Was that- yeah, and, and why it's important in, yeah. uh, in recovery. Why yeah. it's just a spiritual yeah. question. Yeah. Yeah, I think I want to answer it specifically to what we're talking about right now. There's so many different ways we could go about this, and I'm sure it will flesh itself out over uh, future podcasts as well as this one. But one of the thoughts I have is that the focus in traditional therapy, and in fact, in a lot of recovery work, is to work on trying to root out original trauma. So let's get at the formative trauma that is at the core of your addiction, and once we've kind of excised that surgically, you'll you'll, you'll uh, see the light and you won't have any need for, for a, a, a substance. And I don't think that that's to be thrown out. I think that it's uh, useful. And for some people, it's really uh, uh, transformative. <clears throat> that's not been my own personal experience, nor does it square with my understanding of contemporary trauma theory, mm-hmm. um, although there are exceptions to that. So I want to hold that as being a partial explanation. But I'd like to bring in what John, you, and Doug are talking about now, which is I think just as powerful an approach can be coming from the other angle. And uh, Jung wrote about this in terms of, called it, um, well, he, he talked about it in terms of Aristotle, in terms of final cause. And I think we've talked about this before. The idea here is that if I come in, and I did as an, as an addict and I'm in need of help, that it may be just as important to focus on what it is that I'm forestalling or what it is that I'm missing in terms of my, my uh, vocation. Yep. That may be just as important as looking at what happened in my childhood. It's not to say that the two are disconnected because right. typically they're not. Like one of the things that trauma traumatizes is that sense of 
purpose and meaning and value. Why am I here? But why not focus on that? And I'll speak about this personally rather than theoretically. Over the years of my working with Don, uh, a Jungian analyst who's thoroughly committed to this perspective, he would, he would probably talk about it as being an archetypal explanation. So when I bring my addiction to Don or bring any other stumbling in my life to Don, and there have been some pretty cataclysmic stumbles, stumbles along the way, is that we look at them in terms of what is, what is to be learned from this? What does it point towards? How do we take the good that's, that's uh, mixed into this and pull that out from the stuff that needs to be separated, et cetera? And so I've never had a sense with Don of being shamed for failures, so-called failures. Yeah. Uh, but the emphasis has not been, it's not been in, um, uh, cheap grace. The emphasis has been learn from this so that you don't have to repeat it. And then what does it point towards? And so, for example, my, my addiction addressed a number of things that I had not done adequately in terms of cleaning up, growing up, et cetera. It also opened up a whole sphere for me, which I wouldn't have known this if you'd known me 20 years ago. I wouldn't have known that I was talking a lot, a, a lot more about shadow than actually understanding it. But it, 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 it seems to me, and an archetypal, or if we'll talk about it in terms of a spiritual understanding, would say Bob Weathers needed to develop a much more intimate relationship with darkness and shadow and human shortcoming, if he's going to adequately reach out to people that suffer those uh, those experiences themselves. Uh, I already had the optimism and the hope on board. I didn't have enough acquaintanceship with darkness. And so just that way of looking at it as a spiritual way of looking at my own my own failures. I Even when I use that word, I'm thinking in, apost- uh, in the italics. My own failures become italicized. It's like they're failures on the way to what? On the way to further growth for the development, my, my, my ultimate purpose for being here. I've never felt so um, deeply in sync with my purpose than I do right now. And it's been completely informed by my having fouled up and gotten way off track in the last 10 to 20 years. So something like that, John, is, is what I'm thinking about. Is, is, it's like, a, it's like a, an archetypal uh, embeddedment or a, um, a spiritual framework for understanding anything on a personal level. The way that Don talks about it is that we can, we can interpret things personalistically. That would be a Jungian frame. Or we can interpret them transpersonally. And that's really yeah. what we're talking about. And so the same phenomena are always understood in a transpersonal framework. So it's never enough to say, well, I did this because my mom talked to me this way. That may be true, but it's not nearly adequate. You have to look, yeah. okay, and, and what am I to live out then? How am I to transform that? How am I to make a difference? How am I not to perpetrate that on others, et cetera? Does that help at all to kind of take one look at this, you guys? Oh, my God. Well, you said so much. Yeah, it, it all, you know, and part of it is like, you know, when we are young, innocent, you know, it's easy to love people, everything like that. But then you lose your innocence, you know, you fall on your face, you get crushed and everything. And when you come out of that, then you learn, you can learn compassion. It's like, oh, yeah, my shit stinks. You know, oh, my God, you know, I'm, you know, uh, to a certain extent. And then you just kind of have to get over it and realize you're human like the rest of us. And we're all struggling, you know, and we've had grace and we've had teachers that have showed up or just the capacity to survive hard situations and then we come out kind of broken but in those cracks you know compassion if we if we, if we allow it to come through can come through uh with others and you know i mean if you've ever met a self-righteous person who just you know figures they've never done anything wrong and they're you know that's just really it's it's first, first of all it's just denial because you know there's none of us that are, are that way and it's really hard so that breaking 
can be a good thing. And one of the things I used to tell my students about recovery is that all your, you know, your deficits, people start getting sober and they feel, oh my God, I've done all this stuff. You feel so much shame, wasted years, hurt people, hurt myself, blah, blah, blah. But those can become your assets, you know, just like you were saying, you can transform that into the service of purpose and meaning and, and giving back and creativity and all these, these values that we have to give. And like you were saying, it's not just the trauma stuff or the dark dragons as I used to talk with the teens about, but they're the light dragon, the goodness. So in part in, in, in transmuting the, the darkness, we also are releasing the light, you know, and the beauty and that just doing that, finding that and having that flow come through you is a healing experience. And I think some of the junk comes out along the way. It begins this flow. It's like when you start a, a pump that hasn't been done a long time. First of the water's kind of dirty and murky and you keep working and then it comes out and it's clear, beautiful, drinkable water. So it occurs to me while you're talking, John, that when we talk about purpose and meaning, there can be a tendency to, to think in terms of these grand ideas and changing the world and doing big, important work. And that's not our purpose and our meaning and the way we go about in the world can show up in a lot of different ways. And it's going to change from moment to moment too in our action interactions with folks and depending on what we're engaged in. And we don't need to get caught up in the overwhelming baggage of trying to do something monumental with our lives. That's necessarily going to change the world because that can happen in very small ways. And the compass that guides it comes directly from those experiences of spirituality. And that is part of why an inner contemplative practice is so critical because without it, we don't have that compass to guide our everyday actions. And then, then showing up and washing, washing the dishes for my family can be imbued with meaning because the compass has led me to knowing that that's the right thing to do that will lead to the net good in the world. For example, yeah, I like you that know, way of tying it into showing up. It feels like showing up is kind of the the grand humbler. It's like, that's the goal of this is just to show up. It's showing up, washing dishes, showing up, being a better father, being a better brother, being a better son. Yeah. This old Protestant poem or hymn, I'm not sure, but a little phrase, I've quoted this in the past, but but it says, ready to go, ready to stay, ready my place to fill, ready for service, small or great, ready to do God's will. You know, and if you don't have this big thing, Oh, thank God, you know, you could just, you know, chop wood, carry water, you know, be one, you know, praise Father Sky and Mother Earth and, and be a good husband or a friend or whatever. That That's such a noble, beautiful thing to be. Some of us, on the other hand, get called these big things, you know, but that's something that kind of just comes through through karma, through calling. And it's not something to be really sought, you know. I mean, I'm sure Jesus, young man, you know, I don't want to be crucified. You know, I want to really want to be crucified when I grow up and, you know, and do all the things. No, I mean, maybe we're called to those things. But but as you were saying, I, uh, uh, Doug, it's the inner contemplative practice, you know. I, and to me, prayer and meditation are so intertwined right now. I don't know where one ends. And meditation kind of gets me ready for prayer. And prayer is when I'm just emptying myself and, like, like before this thing, you know, Doug, I think we texted two days ago. What are we going to talk about? And I thought, hell, I don't know. I prayed. And I said, ding, okay, I'll do this. And so in, in my interior work, sometimes I get the the big strategic overall, you know, this is what you've got to do, John. Like, okay, are you sure? Yes. Okay. Anyway, it doesn't quite go like that. But on the other hand, I get the little tactical things. Okay, you know, take a left at the next bridge or something like that. And, and the things I'm supposed to be do daily and it comes from a different place than just my rational 
beautiful intellectual mind. And, and I hate anything that's anti-intellectual because it all leads to some kind of fascism or control trip, you know? So the mind's a beautiful thing, but I think, I think in our, uh, as we deepen into the interior work, you know, and just as we need to have strong bodies, we need to have strong developed interiors and spend about equal time developing both on a daily basis. Then we begin to tap into that wisdom voice that's beyond our ego, beyond this and that. And we begin to recognize it more and we can look for it, you know, and there's a, there's a, there's a real kind of a comfort and peace that comes that when I don't know what to do, I don't really have to do anything, you know, but when, when it begins to emerge the you know, this, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. And then there's, there's a certain uh, piece that goes along with that. And uh, step 11, my favorite. Okay. Getting back to AA, you know, sought through a prayer meditation to increase our conscious contact with God, seeking only his slash her will and the power to carry it out. So when I'm, when I'm getting, in exploring this presence of the divine spirit, God, however you want to say this, Buddha nature, Allah, whatever it is in, in language, is that deep divine mystery. Uh, I, 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 I recognize I'm pretty weak. <laughs> I said, I'm gonna, you're going to have to give me the interior strength to do what you want me to do, okay? And also you're going to have to help me out on the exterior thing. You know, the people are going to have to show up and this and that and all these, you know, synchronicities are going to have to happen. In other words, I'm going to need a lot of support in this whole project, but I'm going to say yes and embrace it and uh, do my best. And uh, the rest I'll just rely on you, dear God, you know, to help me out here and, and you know, and, and, and embodied in my friends and, and the world and, and the things that come to help me fulfill what I'm supposed to be. Okay, well, we're coming to the end of another uh, Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Anyway, um, you guys delight me so much and um, love you. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And, you know, let everybody know what's going on here, if you think it would be helpful for them. And we'll see you again. Uh, be back next week. God bless. And thanks, Dr. Bob, for showing up. Even though you're not feeling great, you're awesome. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit IntegralRecoveryInstitute.com slash iAwake for the best meditation tracks to support your daily recovery practice. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit us on iTunes and hit subscribe for a new episode every Friday. While you're there, you can help others share the journey and the joy of integral recovery by leaving your five-star rating and a quick review. We're grateful for your support, and we'll see you next time on the Journey of Integral Recovery podcast.